thanks for being brave enough to invite me to speak. Um, the alarms, I assumed, were an early warning that what you've got is an aging Yorkshireman. Um, and Yorkshiremen tend to be blunt, and aging Yorkshiremen have run out of patience with bullshit. So, um, uh, so what I've got to say is pretty hard hitting, really, um, and I make no excuses for it. Um, so let me start with, and most of my talk will be about the upside. There is a downside, the crooks, I'll get to them. Um, but the upside uh, of business and peace is jobs. Um, and I've worked recently in two contexts where uh, jobs created by business are really important. And the, the first is um, getting sensible policies uh, for refugees. Um, my latest book, Refuge, with Alex Betts, who's the director of the Refugee Studies Centre, um, is about that. It's about the Syrian refugee crisis, and it's just come out in paperback, and it's an Economist magazine book of the year, so just go next door to Blackwell's and buy it. I do not get royalties, right? Um, but anyway, so what's Refuge about? Um, it's very much a critique of old-style UNHCR approaches to refugees. Um, uh, it's a critique of what uh, Angela <coughs> Merkel did, which I think is stupid and irresponsible, and it's uh, a plea for business to bring jobs to refugees in the Havens. Alex and I were brought in to go to Jordan, we were invited by the government of Jordan, because um, they got nearly a million refugees, um, and, uh, and it was causing quite a bit problem within Jordan. Um, uh, Jordan is a sort of middle income economy, about $13,000 per capita. Syria, even before the conflict, was a dirt poor economy, $2,000 per capita. So um, why, do, why did Syrians become refugees? Obviously because of violence. Right? The, the fundamental concept is not actually refugees, um, it's displacement. Um, and around the world, there are about 65 million people who are displaced. That's a post-1945 all-time high. So the, the problem of displacement is not going away, it's getting worse. Um, most people who are displaced from their homes, why do they, why do they leave their homes? Um, predominantly because of disorder and sometimes because of hunger, disorder and famine. But you know, the, the big displacement last year was South Sudan, which was a famine. And the famine wasn't because there was a drought, there wasn't a drought. The famine was because of the violence between the, the Dinka and the Nur, which meant people didn't plant. Because they didn't plant, there was no harvest, and so people were starving. So about half the population of South Sudan has become displaced. Right? Um, in Syria, it was this spread of the conflict, mounting disorder, um, which affected the, the population randomly. So 
about half the population of Syria was displaced, and about half of the displaced staggered across the nearest border and then became legally no longer internally displaced but became refugees. But it's exactly the same phenomenon. Sort of, some people moved within Syria to places that were safer, some people moved across the border into Jordan, Turkey, and uh, Lebanon. Um, um, it's important not to model up refugees with migration. The re refugees are by definition the people who chose to stay home and home became impossible and so they, you know, they move. Their, their basic aspiration is usually to go home once they can. Um, and so sure enough the, 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 the refugees demographically are a complete random sample of the Syrian population. They've got the same age structures, same education structures, same everything. You know, just a random sample. Um, and uh, and what's on offer in, what was off, on offer internationally was what UNHCR did, does, uh, and what UNHCR did was basically coming out of the late 1940s, um, which was the right solution to a completely different problem. The late 1940s the problem of refugees was uh, persecution by governments. It was the persecution of Democrats in Eastern Europe by the new communist governments. And those people fled to the West. And the Russians then said, same rules as in 1945. Anybody who flees from, you know, if you'd captured Hungarian soldiers in Western Germany, you return them to Hungary. If you capture fleeing Democrats in Western Germany, you return them to Czechoslovakia or wherever, you know. And so the, the response was the whole UNHCR and uh, the uh, Convention on Refugees to say, no, we don't have to return them. Um, it was very specific to that little political context. <coughs> Uh, and so the solution in 1948-50 um, had been here's these people in temporary movement um, from one place to another and so what they need is food and shelter European winters are cold so you need tents and you need food um, that, that was the right solution in 1948 for that problem. It's a totally stupid solution to the problems of refugees today. Um, as a result of which, about 90% of refugees ignore the whole UNHCR system because what refugees overwhelmingly want to do is re-establish some autonomy in their lives, some coherence in their lives. <coughs> and that means they want a job. And you can't get a job in a camp. The places to get jobs are the towns. And so a lot of the refugees, the Syrian refugees in Jordan, went to the towns to find jobs. Now, remember, it's a $2,000 economy, Syria, and these people are in a $13,000 economy. So they find they, they're willing to work for very much less than Jordanians are willing to work. <coughs> Is that a problem? It sure is, right? It's a threat to poorer Jordanians. And so the, the government of Jordan says, 
you're not allowed to work. You're allowed to come to Jordan, you can be safe, you can go to a camp, but you're not allowed to work. Yeah? Very understandable. If they hadn't said that, there'd have been riots. Don't let these people in. Right? So there you say. That was the context in which Alex and I were brought in. And the Governor Jordan was saying, got any ideas? Yeah? And, uh, and, it, and it wasn't very complicated to work out what was sensible. In fact, right next door to the biggest of all the camps, Zafari, just 15 minutes away, um, we were taken up to the camps by the government to, you know, routinely, here's a camp. Boring, isn't it? Now we've got you. Can we show you something that we're actually proud of, which is our new industrial zone? Right? Uh, King Abdullah Industrial Zone, which is only 15 minutes away. And huge industrial zone, electricity, all the facilities, 90% empty. Right? So for four years, there have been 83,000 people without work in the camp and a 90% empty industrial zone next door, right? So it didn't, you know, didn't take a lot of brain power to think, why don't you create some jobs in this zone and let refugees work? Um, but it had to be something done in a way that was attractive, not just to refugees, but to Jordanians. So we said, if we can bring in European firms to create jobs in this zone, will you let the Syrian refugees have some of the jobs? You could have some of the jobs for Jordanians, some can go... Anyway, that posed in that way, um, the Jordanian government only took six weeks to completely reverse its policy. And it said, okay, we'll, we'll give up to 200,000 work permits. That's a job for every refugee family, um, as long as you bring in jobs. And the, for every 70 jobs you give to refugees, we give to refugees, there's got to be 30 for Jordanians. So they said that, you know, we can just about sell that politically to our population. Um, and, uh, and so that's what we did. Um, we went to the World Bank and said, what are you doing in, in Jordan with the refugees? They said, because I used to work for the World Bank, I ran the research department. So, a guy who worked for me was now chief economist for the Middle East. So I went to him and said, you know, what are you doing? He said, you've forgotten the rules. We're not doing anything. Jordan's an upper middle income country. World Bank is out of it. You know? Uh, I said, yeah, there's a million refugees from Syria. That when, once Syria's post-conflict, the World Bank will be all over it. You know? Why don't you have a policy? He said, we can't. If it's a refugee on the label, it's UNHCR. Nobody else, they've got the monopoly. So we went to UNHCR, so why don't you generate some jobs? UNHCR's full of lawyers who no, no idea, no interest, you know. Um, and so UNHCR officialdom indignantly said, we're not a jobs agency, which was absolutely right, but of course what was needed was unfortunately a jobs agency. So they were basically saying, we're out of this, you know. Um, Every, privately, every senior UNHCR official that we worked with, and in Jordan we were staying with the head of the UNHCR for Jordan, um, was cheering us on, saying, try and get a change in policy. Right? So, so, we, so we did. The World Bank officials took the proposal to their board, should we actually, actually spend money on refugees in Jordan. And 
And it went through the board. It got approval from the board. In fact, unanimous approval. So now there's a whole department in the World Bank with $2 billion over the next three years to spend on helping the economies of haven countries create jobs for refugees and, and schooling for their kids, which is a different story. So then we went to business and said, will you take jobs into Jordan? And, um, and quite a lot of firms in Britain did. They actually, there was a, a system there, they, they flew to Jordan, they looked to see what jobs they could create, what could they make, what could they buy. Um, and so that started to work. There are now many thousands of work permits that have been issued in Jordan. Um, but one of the things we heard from business was there's a big problem. And the big problem wasn't we might lose money. The big problem was we'll get attacked by the NGOs. They'll accuse us of sweatshop labour. And modern, decent firms are terrified of preserving their reputation. And so, you know, we went, I, went, I went to Oxfam and said, you know, look, um, uh, do you realise that inadvertently you're the big impediment to generating jobs and autonomy and dignity for refugees? As long as the job's legal in Jordan, instead of these illegal jobs that people are getting at the moment, if you get a legal job in Jordan, a $13,000 per capita economy, and you're a Syrian, you've arrived in heaven. Right? You know? Before that, you were in a $2,000 economy. Now you're in a $13,000 economy. You're in heaven, right? as long as it's a legal job. So, there's really no issue of labour standards and all that. Um, so what I wanted the NGOs to do, and what I, anybody from an NGO, I appeal today, hug a firm. Eh? The firms are terrified. You NGOs have got the goody two-shoes reputation, a bit tarnished now Oxfam's got up to stuff, but basically um, you need to hug a firm so that you can protect it. And that's, in a way, what the UN Compact can do, is give, give, give a firm that, that actually does a decent job reputational protection. Yeah. And that's really, really important. So there's a natural alliance here between NGOs and business. The business does what it can do, which is create jobs the people who most need it. So business needs to get out of the idea that we're a charity, we send blankets to refugees. You do your core job. You create viable businesses which can then confer autonomy and the restoration of dignity on refugee lives whilst they're waiting for the disorder to pass. Um, so that's the, the new strategy, and it's now got a lot of traction. Um, even UNHCR, the new head, is now using our language. The, the, the subtitle of our book, Refuge, is called um, uh, Transforming a Broken Refugee System. 
the, of, the new head of UNHCR is admitting that the, the refugee system is completely broken. Um, so, let me just end with the, the, on the refugees with a footnote as to why that's superior to the ridiculous conversation we've had in Europe about um, what we should do is open our doors to refugees. Right? The Merkel thing that lasted about three months. Right? And was a, an act of... Uh, anybody who's read my books will know that I distinguish the heart and the head. Right? And there are policies of the, heart, of the head which ignore the heart. That's the, the, the heartless head. That's what Europe had to refugees from 2011 to 2015. The refugees went to Jordan, Turkey, and Lebanon, and Europe just said, ah, oh, thank God they've gone there, not our problem. Huh? 2014, Germany halved its contribution to UNHCR for food to the refugees in Jordan. Huh? So that was the, that was the, the heartless head. And then we lurched for three months um, with Merkel to the policies of the headless heart. It was all very emoty, and all the NGOs said, ooh, isn't she good? You know, give her the Nobel Peace Prize, give her with this, whatever, you know. And it was utterly irresponsible. And here's, here's the evidence as to why it was utterly irresponsible. Um, first, who actually went to Germany. Now all the photos were of, the photos concentrated on women, children. 70% yeah? of the people who moved were young men. Yeah? Um, Merkel's offer didn't come with any means of getting to Germany. You had to get on a boat. Um, you had to, more specifically, buy your place on a boat. And the fee was somewhere between $1,500 and $6,000 cash. Remember per capita income in Syria, $2,000 a year. Who's able to put their money, hand in their pocket and come out with several thousand dollars cash? Not the poor refugees who are in Jordan and Lebanon and Syria and, 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 and Turkey. This is, this is the, the, the upper middle class of, um, of, of Syrian society. So the upper middle class of Syrian society put their hands in their pockets, do a fire sale of their assets in Syria to release some cash, and send their young men to Germany. Right? But it's more selective than that. Here's the real killer. Um, the, remember, the exodus of refugees, a completely random demographic uh, sample of the overall Syrian population. Fear just strikes randomly. Less than 5% of the refugees that went to Germany, um, sorry, less than 5% of the Syrian population went to Germany. So it's a very small group relative to the vast pool of refugees, less than 5%. But that tiny group of less than 5% is between a third and a half of all Syrians with university education. And so inadvertently, Merkel gutted Syria of the very people it will need to reconstruct the society. Because reconstruction is not, in the end, about concrete 
It's about rebuilding organizations. The people who will be needed will be the young educated. That's the group on which a viable future of Syria depends. And they're in Germany. The final insult to injury is having got the cream of the Syrian educated labor force to Germany, Germany is the last place on earth that can create jobs for, um, for people who aren't German. Um, because it's the ultimate society that has worked very well with long periods of training, certification, credentials. It's the ultimate labor market credential society. Very high minimum wages, loads of credentials. Yeah? And so two years after all these young Syrians with degrees arrived in Germany, 14% of them have got work. So, it was big-hearted. It was foolish and irresponsible. It's the sort of thing that a top global leader should not be doing. And that's, you know, three months later, she completely changed policy. She, she went and bribed Erdogan, bless him, with three billion euro, and said, shut the door, which he did. Right. Right. So she completely reversed policy. She's never said it was the wrong thing to do. There's a very strategic reason why she's never said it's the wrong thing to do. Um, because she wants to shift those refugees out of Germany into the rest of Europe, which is what the, she's trying to do through the European Commission. So this is not great noble stuff. This is the headless heart. Um, I mean, I know Merkel, I've had dinner with her. Um, the Germans brought me in last year to, to, to do an Africa initiative for their G20. So, you know, I kind of know what I'm talking about. Um, and she herself now recognises that what she needed to do was get jobs. So, got jobs for refugees. So, come Ethiopia, which has got a lot of, a lot of refugees, a lot of refugees from South Sudan and Eritrea. Um, she actually, to her credit, flew to Ethiopia to indeed see whether German firms can go to Ethiopia and generate jobs. So she's got the message now, it's business. Um, so that's, um, that's refugees. And then business has got an equally important role in another aspect of peace. Refugees is about dealing with the mess once you've got conflict. But there's a big role of business in preventing conflict, which is trying to reduce fragility. And I've just co-directed a commission on state fragility, which reported, <coughs> la reported last month. Um, was co-chaired by Donald Kabarupa, who for 10 years was president of the African Development Bank, and David Cameron, who you have heard of. And uh, it was co-directed by myself and Tim Besley, who's professor at LSE. Um, it's called Escaping the Fragility Trap, and if you just Google it, it's all there for free. Um, and its central message um, is, uh, is, is really the, the way that Bill Clinton won his first election campaign for president. Um, 
those of you who are a certain age will remember the 1992 slogan he used against George Bush the first um, it's the economy stupid yeah. and making societies more resilient reduce risk of fragility is basically it's about building the economy and one aspect of the economy in particular, jobs. People need jobs. If young men don't have jobs, they're much more susceptible um, to organised violence. And so it's a vital matter to generate jobs that are decent jobs. Decent jobs does not mean do they tick labour market standards. Decent jobs, first and foremost, mean is the job sufficiently productive to pay a sensible wage? 90% of my work is on Africa, and two-thirds of Africans work solo. Right? They work in an enterprise which has only one worker. Ever since Adam Smith, we've known what the miracle, what, did, what productivity depends upon. Right? Adam Smith going into the first factories in Scotland and seeing, being, being stunned at how more productive people were in those factories. And what was raising productivity wasn't education, it wasn't labour market standards or anything. It was just two things. It was scale and specialisation. Instead of working solo, people were working together in a large group. That created economies of scale. And because there were lots of people in a large group, some people could specialise on this, and some people could specialise on that. As you specialise, you get better. It's called learning by doing. That is the miracle of productivity. So, for example, in Ethiopia, if you move from a small, from a from a, an informal firm which has four workers, which is quite big for an informal firm, to a formal firm of 50, which is quite small for a formal firm, you move from four to 50, um, then uh, the productivity per worker goes up tenfold. Not 10%, tenfold, ten times. Yeah? And. Um, uh, and that is, um, is the miracle of productivity. If productivity goes up tenfold, then wages could be a lot higher. It's a decent job. Yeah. That's the transformation out of poverty. What do we need to move from two-thirds of Africans working solo to get them into firms of 50 or so? We need firms, proper firms that know how to organise uh, activity at some sort of scale. You know? that's, what, that's the core skill that all proper firms have um, and which informality doesn't achieve. Yeah? I'm not a big fan of microenterprise. Right? <coughs> microenterprise is small and cuddly and all warm and cosy, but actually it's dumb. Right? It dooms people to this isolation and low productivity and therefore poverty. Um, so the route to peace is get firms to come to places 
they'd rather not go to. Um, I'll give you an example. I'm a, put my pension, I'm, I'm still working, but by some quirk of the rules, I was able to withdraw a load of cash from my pension. So I thought, well, I better put my money where my mouth is. So I put my money in a little, little startup firm that was trying to um, grow and mill rice in, uh, in Sierra Leone. <coughs> Post conflict state, <coughs> desperately short of jobs. So we're now the, the biggest um, rice milling operation in Sierra Leone, which is not saying anything at all. Right? <laughs> um, now, rice is the staple food of Sierra Leone because guess what? They used to grow it. They used to grow, in fact, they used to export it across West Africa. And then came the conflict and all that, and the rice stopped being grown. Um, and so 95% of Sierra Leone's rice is now imported. You know, whatever development strategy you think of for Sierra Leone, getting rice back seems to be fundamental. And in order to, in order to get rice back, one of the bottlenecks is you've got to mill it. Because if you mill by hand, it's very slow in the water. So you need mills, rice mills. Um, so we set up a rice mill. Um, Guess what? Nobody in Sierra Leone knows how to run a rice mill because there aren't any. Right? And so, um, what have we had to do? Bring in foreigners to run the rice mill and teach. You know, one of the things they've got to do is teach Sierra Leoneans how to run the rice mill. Suppose, by some miracle, we were successful, which we're not. Right? But suppose we actually started to make money. Right? instead of me saying bye bye pension so suppose we were successful and made money what would happen well other firms would say that's a good idea we'll bring in a rice mill we'll set up a rice mill too where would they find their skilled labor to run that rice mill from us huh? now that's what i've described is called the first mover disadvantage the first firms in a sector in a fragile environment um, have a big disadvantage. If they're the first, they'll incur a load of costs and a load of risks that if they're successful, other firms will come in. Okay? If they <coughs> fail, nobody says, very sorry, you know? <coughs> now that's what's called in economics an externality. You're taking a load of risks and Mm -hmm. We very much want and need firms that do that. But most firms are not kamikaze operations. You know, um, most viable firms cannot depend upon suckers like me putting my pension into it. Right? And so there aren't very many firms that go to places where markets are small, risks are big, there aren't any skills. And so and um, we're stuck in a very dysfunctional equilibrium in which firms don't go there because they're not crazy. Yeah? Now, what should we do about that? Well, there's a very simple solution, which is recommended by our report, Escaping the Fragility Trap, which is because there's a big global public interest 
in generating jobs in fragile places. And because very rationally firms don't want to go there and do it, we need to use some public money to compensate the firms for the public benefit that they create. This is not rocket science any more than the, the idea that we should generate some jobs for refugees in Jordan was rocket science. These are bloody obvious things. Right? Uh, I've been on the advisory board for IFC, the, the private sector arm of the World Bank Group, for the last five years. And I discovered when I joined it that the business model of IFC, um, which works with, with firms, right? the business model was make money in China, um, uh, make a profit, and hand the profit over to IDA, which is the World Bank's aid agency. I said, this is completely wrong. You're not needed in China. China's got plenty of firms. It doesn't need you. Where you're needed is to get, your role is to get decent firms to go to places they'd rather not go to, but where there'd be a big public benefit. And to do that, instead of you transferring your money to, to IDA, IDA needs to transfer its money to you. Five years later, we just achieved that for the first time in history. Right? So there's now two and a half billion dollars transferred from IDA to IFC to use in fragile states. Very first time it's happened. Right? Exactly the same thing has happened with DFID and CDC in Britain. Right? And again, guess what my friends in the NGOs said? Shock horror. You know? This is shameful. That aid could be used for touchy-feely purposes, you know, the war, you know, the, the good photogenic stuff, um, uh, you know, feeding children or whatever, um, and instead you're handing it to private business. You know, this is the, the Tories at their worst, you know, and all that sort of stuff. You know? And my answer is, grow up. Grow up. You know? These... Places are desperately fragile. They're desperately fragile because they don't have productive jobs. The only entities that can create productive jobs are firms. It's very, very hard for societies to grow their own firms if there are no firms around. And let me give you an example of a huge successes of foreign firms generating local firms. Um, uh, the, in, in Bangladesh, the biggest sector now uh, is the garment sector. It, uh, it has $30 billion of exports a year. $30 billion. Huge. And who does it employ? Mainly young women from poor rural households who come to town, get these garment jobs, and we know over the years that has enormously changed the balance of power within households, empowering young people. Because now they've got direct access to income of their own. So it's been enormously beneficial. How did that garments industry get started? Get started in 1980 because a foreign garment firm came to Bangladesh and said, we're going to try and make garments here and export them. It tried for three years and like me with rice in Sierra Leone, after three years, they packed up, they decided, 
too hard, too hard. The bureaucracy's a mess, we just can't manage it. But loads of Bangladeshi who worked for that firm said they don't know how to operate in Bangladesh, but we do. And so they left that firm and set up their own firms. And that's the origin of the now $30 billion industry. Right? That keeps happening. I've, I've got a former student, Japanese, who's a, an entrepreneur, fantastic guy. He went to Bangladesh three years ago and saw a niche. There's a, there's a new technology for making roofing tiles, which is low energy. And, uh, and he said, None of this technology is being used in Bangladesh, so I'll set up a firm that makes roofing tiles with this technology. And sure enough, after three years, he's hit a rock. You know, he found somebody in the bureaucracy, he needed a permission, they wanted a bribe, he wouldn't pay, and so he quit. But, he says, it's been a good thing because the three years I was trying, there's now 25 local firms. I can't get through the bureaucracy, they can. So there's now a whole industry generated by one foreign firm that packed up and left. So that's the, um, that's the role for business. And again, NGOs have an important role to play here in partly in encouraging, giving, giving the agencies like the World Bank and DFID moral permission to use money to generate jobs. And again, sort of hug, hug a firm. Um, one little, I'm, I'm drawing to a close, one little twist here um, is, uh, is an ESG, Environmental, Social and Governance Standards. Um, um, the danger is that we get these single unified global standards set at completely dysfunctional levels for fragile states, and so it kills activity. So let me give you an example of why you will need differentiated standards in different places. Um, and at the moment, uh, IFC, for example, doesn't have that. So this is, a, this is a live battle in IFC. Um, when IFC funds a project in China, which it does, what standards should we be prioritizing? And let me focus on two. Uh, should we be focusing on, does it generate jobs in China? Or should we be focusing on, does it reduce carbon emissions? Now, in China, it's a first order matter that China reduces carbon emissions. Because it's huge economy, it's the biggest single emitter of carbon on Earth. And so it's a vital matter for global warming that it actually transforms. Do the Chinese need more jobs? No. I was brought into China a couple of years ago. I couldn't believe I was in. Here the government was saying, we've got to get rid of, of jobs. We've got to get rid of the, the low-skill manufacturing jobs. We've got, to, we've got to close firms. We've got to move them out of China. Because Chinese demographics are so weird. The, the, number, the absolute number of young people in China is falling. So they're running out of workers. They've got new industries coming up. It's young workers who are best at innovating and adapting. And so they want the young workers to go to the new firms. And for that, they've got to get rid of 
on the old firms. So the last thing China wants is, oh, here's a firm that's going to generate more jobs. So it's really important that we say, if there's international public money, I see whatever's going on in China should be uh, reducing carbon emissions. So in China, what's vital is carbon emissions, not jobs. And now let's go to South Sudan. What matters in South Sudan in the balance between do we want activities which reduce carbon emissions or which generate jobs? It's not complicated, is it? Obviously, what matters in South Sudan uh, is jobs. Um, Do do carbon emissions matter very much in South Sudan? Not really. And yet, guess what? DFID had had a program in South Sudan to reduce carbon emissions. Anybody who doesn't find that funny hasn't understood the first thing about fragile states, right? Um, So we need differentiated standards that recognize the distinctive needs and constraints in fragile states, and we haven't got them. The danger is we get a moral juggernaut that says we need the same global standards everywhere, and the same global standards everywhere will always mean the standards that we think are appropriate in the really important places, like ourselves, and they will then ride roughshod over the the places that I think really matter, which are the most desperate struggles on earth. Um, Let me close with the downside of business in fragile states, and there is one, and that's the crooks. And I think this situation is actually getting worse. Um, I was just talking with the, the new chairman of one of the biggest mining companies on earth. It's a very decent company. And um, they've got a, a good reputation, and they're terrified that their reputation will become tarnished. And so, their strategy, they've decided, is just, they'll not, they'll not mine in Africa. If they mine in Africa, they're just too reputationally exposed. It's just not worth it. They could be accused of corruption, they could be accused of not meeting this standard or that standard. So the simplest thing for them is just, it's a, it's a big world, they don't need to operate in, in Africa. Right? Yesterday I was with the president of Ghana, and he's, he was saying, you know, our core business is actually resource extraction. Um, and, um, and we need decent companies. And as the decent companies, like the one I've told you about, say, basically, it's just too fraught operating Africa. Um, what's he going to be left with as a choice? He's going to be left with the choice of Chinese or crooks. And as somebody pointed out to me, there's always the third possibility of Chinese crooks. Um, and uh, and so you know we must be careful what we wish for we we don't want to do things which just drive decent companies out what we've got to do is make life much much harder for the crooks and the core there is 
uh, is transparency against corruption. And um, uh, there have been, there've been two are actually British-led initiatives in the last few years, which is very good, I think. So one was to get the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative uh, adopted by the, the G8 countries, um, which happened with the British G8 of uh, 2013. Until that time, none of the G8 countries had signed the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative, and at that meeting, five of them signed up. So that was very good. Um, EITI has got lots of limitations, but it's better than nothing. It's a move towards transparency, and EITI is itself a process which is gradually taking on more issues, such as publishing the contracts. It's very important. Um, the latest battlefront is against what's called shell companies. And shell companies um, are um, companies that are set up in such a way that you cannot tell who really owns the company. There are nominees, and you can't get beyond them. You can't get to the what's called the beneficial owner, the, the guy who's actually going to make money from the company. Um, and uh, the epicenter of setting up shell companies, who sets shell companies up, by the way, is lawyers. Where are the lawyers in the city of London? Um, so the global epicentre uh, of shell companies turned out to be London. Um, and, um, and then you get a second area of secrecy, just to, just to be on the safe side. So you, you're a crook, you've made money, you know. This is a, a bribed minister of mines in Africa, let's think of that. Right? Um, I worked a lot with the government of Guinea and uh, the first democratic president inherited a, a crook as, as minister of mines um, who's now now jailed but um, uh, the crook basically um, pocketed a lot of money and uh, and set up a shell company and then that was thanks to London lawyers and then where do you put the money you put it in a secrecy haven, a banking secrecy haven, which tends to be concentrated in the um, overseas territories, of which, you know, the Cayman Isles and that sort of stuff. And so that gives you a double layer of secrecy. Um, you can't tell who owns the bank account, and if you discover who's got which company owns the bank account, you can't tell who who actually benefits from the company. So there's a double layer of secrecy. And uh, uh, to his credit, the last act that, uh, uh, that David Cameron did as Prime Minister was convene the first world summit on corruption. And, um, and he introduced, he, he transformed the, the legal position in Britain and said, um, we will have a compulsory public register of the true beneficial ownership of all companies registered in Britain. And that was a world first. So instead of Britain being the epicenter of the problem of shell companies, 
became the first country to have this compulsory register of true ownership. And so the battlefront is now to take that precedent across other countries. Um, it would be great if we could take it across um, the European Union um, and, and at the same time tackle the tax havens. Um, unfortunately, the, um, Europe's epicenter of tax havenness is Luxembourg, and the guy who was finance minister and prime minister of Luxembourg for 20 years who set up that system is um, Herr Juncker, who's now the president of the European Commission. So it's, the one thing you can say about him is he knows how the system works. <laughs> um, um, when I pointed out, that out to Chancellor Merkel, um, she looked a bit sick. Um, so, um, so that's one battlefront, the shell companies, and then the twin battlefront is breaking the banking secrecy haven. And a very exciting development happened um, just about two weeks ago, which became you know, headline newspaper, front page newspaper news, which was that the House of Commons and the House of Lords overruled the government to require um, the transparency conditions to apply in the British overseas territories, all 18 of them. And that produced indignant responses from the Cayman, Cayman Isles, all about sovereignty and our human rights to, to embezzle and what have you. Um, um, but actually, it was just what was needed. It was just what was needed. Um, I started that battle in 2013 when I was brought in for the British G8. And, uh, and, and I persuaded David Cameron to say he convened the first ever meeting of all the heads of government of the overseas territories, all 18 of them. And I saw him just before he went into the lunch, he said, this is going to be a tough meeting. And he came out with a, a major step towards greater transparency. Um, and now there's been, thanks to Parliament, this much bigger step. Um, so that's the, the vital um, battlefront that is still very, very active. Right? Um, we need firms, but we need firms that are honest. And at the moment, it's far too easy to work by bribery. The big losers of that, apart from the, the societies, the poor societies themselves, the big losers are the decent companies. You know, like the, the, the mining company that I told you about, where they just say, reputationally, it's just too dangerous to operate in these environments. We're not going to do it. So we've got to clean up the crooks in order to make the environment habitable again by the diesel. So I promised you um, I would be worthy of the alarm, and uh, hopefully I have been, but thank you very much.